0: This is Andre from Mental Health, and I'm here today with Rachel Rowan Olive, who I'm sure a lot of you will know from Twitter. Uh, She's an illustrator and a member of the lived experience working group that the Mental Health Policy Research Unit has recently set up. Do you want to tell us a bit about the kind of background to your talk and your kind of introduction to this, and you know, why are you talking at this event? Do you think?
1: Well, I guess my personal background is this is a diagnosis that I have, and that I have a very complicated relationship with I guess um I so 75% of people who get this diagnosis are women and I think it's just not nice being told that your personality is disordered it's just rude (laughs) um but also I think in the context of a diagnosis where 75% of the people diagnosed are women you have to start thinking about why is that where does that come from is that Because there are things which happen to women which we respond to in ways which are interpreted as these symptoms? Or is that because actually there are things which everybody does which, in this context, are pathologized in kind of the long and noble tradition that we have of pathologizing female emotion and female ways of being? And I think that's. complicated question and I I think there's elements of both probably because bearing in mind that you only have to have you only have to tick five out of nine boxes to get this diagnosis there's such a huge spectrum of different people who have it it's it just it feels a little bit to me like horoscope like you know the way that they're phrased vaguely enough that um it sort of looks like it's solid until you look closer and then you realize like everybody can see a little bit of themselves in it and then you look closer and it kind of evaporates. It, it feels a bit like that to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you've spoken about your own kind of experience of services being relatively positive, although they are kind of studded with all sorts of horrendous discriminatory episodes as well. But, um, I guess that's not typical is it of of people with with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder a lot of people don't get good support
1: yeah i mean i'm in a lot of ways incredibly lucky in that i actually have a care coordinator under a personality disorder team who i get on with and who supports me but i don't i don't think that's the case for the vast majority of people i think for most people it's a diagnosis of exclusion even though so there were two studies that were done about 20 years apart um, that looked at uh, the predictions that clinicians made for someone who like they gave them a scenario that in one group they told them that this person had borderline personality disorder and in another they didn't and it was exactly the same scenario the patient was described in exactly the same ways in every other way and consistently, clinicians made worse predictions and were more likely to make negative judgments about that patient if they were told they had a personality disorder. And um, there's some evidence that that's particularly, there are particularly yeah. problematic uh, attitudes among nursing staff. Um, there was a, a review of literature done in think, 2015 that suggested that that was the case. Um, And in the 20 years between those two studies, there were huge amounts of policy efforts to reduce this discrimination. Um, And it it kind of suggests they just haven't worked. So there was was the no longer diagnosis of exclusion document in 2003, there was meeting the challenge, making a difference in, I think 2012, which was about supporting people with this diagnosis in the community. And then this repeat study just showed that these attitudes are still there. Nothing's really changed. And that really makes me think, maybe this diagnosis is just irredeemable. Maybe there is no way to tell someone that their personality is wrong and not have the people treating them blame them for it. Like, I, I just, I'm just not sure that it's possible anymore to destigmatize this and I also think we talk a lot about stigma in mental health it's become like the word that people use but actually this this isn't stigma this is more than that like stigma is when someone doesn't like you because you're different but when so when I told the crisis team I was suicidal and I couldn't keep myself safe overnight and they went okay see you tomorrow That's not stigma, that's neglect. Like that's taking huge risks with my life. And I I think we have to start being more real about what's actually happening if we're gonna fix this. Like we can't pretend it's just people being a bit mean or like finding us challenging. It's like, it's more than that. It's people not doing their jobs because we have this diagnosis
0: in, in terms of a diagnosis do you think there's a better way of understanding these difficulties as you said it's a very broad range of experiences and difficulties but is there do you think there's a clinically better way of organizing it and diagnosing it
1: I'm not sure that there's a single one I think that for a lot of people complex PTSD would be a better way of understanding this but I think that um, there needs to be a lot of work done around how we understand trauma and how we understand complexity in order to not leave people behind in that shift. Because um, the way that complex PTSD is formulated in ICD 11, I think, is deeply problematic. Um, it's very specific about what counts as trauma, and it's very specific about how people how the symptoms of, uh, or the manifestations of the difficulties that people have, have to relate quite directly to the things that have happened to them. And I don't think, like, that's not how complexity works. Like, like there's, there's it says stuff like the kind of persistent feelings of shame and worthlessness relating to the traumatic event. And actually, Memory of trauma is a very tricky thing and a very disputed thing. And if you've internalized a lot of shame and feelings of worthlessness, they're not necessarily going to feel related to a specific thing. Like, you're not going to think, Oh, I feel worthless because this thing happened to me. You're just going to think, I feel worthless because I'm shit. And I think we need to reconsider how we think about cause and effect and how we like all the things that can intervene in that. Um, in that chain of events before we like, I I don't want people to suffer with the current system when they don't have to. But I I think particularly in the context of austerity where services are so firmly gatekept, we need to be really careful that we don't start gatekeeping people's trauma experiences and policing them and making people like, hold up the worst things that have ever happened to them to some stranger in a diagnosis interview and say like is this bad enough like does this count is this a bad enough thing to have happened to me to justify how mad i am because i feel like that sometimes and i think in some ways the movement towards looking at adverse childhood experiences i think that's a great starting point but i think if we stop there then that's what happens. We get this policing of um, trauma experiences that like, these are things that count as trauma and that justify you having mental health problems as an adult and anything else that isn't on that list doesn't count. And what's missing from that list is often a lot of social factors, things like poverty, racism, homophobia. I feel like internalized homophobia was a massive contributing factor to me developing the problems that I have. Like just, Nobody ever mentioned that women could fall in love with each other. Like it just wasn't a thing. And so when I had feelings for other women, it was something that I was so deeply ashamed of and I just didn't want to face it for such a long time. And I, I think that the way that things like that just slowly drip away, like water on a rock at the feeling of who you are and it just eats away at you and it's not necessarily something that you can pin down to a traumatic event or a thing that happened it's about the environment that you grew up in and the way that that invalidated your sense of who you not just who you were but who you could become and yeah so I think I think we have to be very careful around that and I think we also have to think about things like traumatic events that happen also maybe when people are older like for me one of the things that like so my dad died when I was 19 and that was a horrible thing and it was a horrible process and it was very isolating and it happened a couple of years before I had my breakdown but I think it was definitely a contributing factor but at 19 I wasn't a child like it wasn't it wasn't a trauma that happened in my childhood and I think Yeah, I just think we need to be careful about moving, just transferring everything about BPD across onto another diagnosis because, partly because not everybody's going to fit and partly also because I think you can just end up with all the same prejudices just being switched across.
0: You know, over the last few years, we've seen this kind of real, Increased interest in trauma-informed care, and that started to have some impact in some places.
1: Yeah. What do you think?
0: What do you think we need to sort of um, to do to to change the way that professionals conceptualise some of these issues for people?
1: I think getting more services and survivors routinely involved in teaching and training of professionals, I think, would potentially be quite helpful. Um but maybe that's just because I do that kind of teaching and training and I would like to think that it makes a difference. Like, (laughs) There's a certain element of maybe wishful thinking there. Um, I think people need to be held accountable for their actions. Um, And if somebody discriminates or neglects a patient, I think then if that patient raises that, they need to be taken seriously. And I think the way that the way that the complaint system works, I don't think that happens at the moment. So I feel possibly a combination of um, more, yeah, more involvement in teaching and training, but also when that doesn't work, there being a robust system for holding people to account, Um, which is never a very popular thing to say, because then people sort of sometimes interpret that as you kind of just wanting to hang people out to dry and you kind of have to spend a lot of time validating that you know people are massively stressed and massively under-resourced and doing the best they can in a difficult system and I do know that but it's people's lives that people have control over and if that isn't happening safely they have like measures have to be taken to protect
0: people so this this event that's happening on tuesday the 22nd of january is um it's in london and we're going to be live tweeting it and, and doing all sorts of audio and video stuff from the event we're going to try and get people involved particularly on twitter in the conversations um and it's a really kind of Interesting program, you know, people with lived experience, people with clinical backgrounds, people with research backgrounds, people in policy roles, health economics roles, and there's talks and there's also lots of um, kind of round table discussions in the room. What are you looking forward to most in terms of the topics that we're going to be talking about?
1: I guess I'm hoping and looking forward to kind of keeping things quite. keeping. A focus on pragmatics and on how we actually go about supporting people because I like there are parts in my talk that are quite theoretical and thinking about the construct of of BPD and but I think we have to couple that with looking at like okay what are we actually going to do um how are we actually going to change things and I'm hopeful that in a policy context, having these discussions that we can stay quite focused on that. Um, because at the end of the day, like this is our lives in the meantime. And um, yeah, I, I, I love having discussions where we're like, imagine if we could do anything, but at the same time, then I kind of go home and I go back to my life in services and let the disconnect between the discussions that I have sometimes and the reality is is quite painful sometimes so yeah I guess I'm looking forward to trying to think about like what practically how are we going to change things how are we going to support people what's happening already that's really good that can be built on from the ground up
0: it's really positive, isn't it, that NHS England have, have got this on their radar and it's part of the policy discussions that they're having and the fact that the policy research unit are doing this, this event and, and running this project. I suppose, you know, yeah, build on it and, and let's use this platform to actually have some real change. That would be fantastic. I yeah, That
1: would be nice, yeah.
0: <laughs> Just finally, I wanted to ask you, your talk is, is titled Feminist Critiques of Borderline Personality Disorder. What would you say is the most important take-home point for professionals, people that provide care?
1: That This is a gendered thing. There is no way of getting away from that. And everybody thinks they are unbiased. But nobody is immune to unconscious bias and to societal influences. And to just be open to the possibility that possibly society's views of women might be influencing your views of women that you work with and your practice even no matter how much you are working with a view to wanting to help people and wanting to support people just so I'm a Quaker and there's a a thing in one of the like Quaker testimonies that is I don't know like a Quaker catchphrase and it's Think it possible that you might be mistaken. I like it because it's not like you're definitely wrong. All of the things you're doing are wrong. You're going into this with the wrong intentions, even though sometimes I think that. It's just like, just be open to the possibility that you might not be approaching this in entirely the right way. That's my take home. Think it possible that you might be mistaken.
0: (laughs) Nice. That should be the hashtag for this event, shouldn't it?
1: (laughs) I'm not proselytizing, I promise.
0: No, that's great. Rachel, brilliant. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking to me. I'm really looking forward to the event on the 22nd and, and w- listening to your talk and, and reading your tweets. Thanks a lot.
1: Cool, thanks. <laughs>